You're listening to Comedy Central. Why, hello, everybody. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Thursday, the 17th of September, and here's your quarantine tip of the day. If you're planning on finally seeing your older relatives for the first time in months, remember, don't eat any of the hard candies that they give you. And this is not a COVID thing. Those things are just gross. Anyway, on tonight's show, Donald Trump divorces half the country, Bill Barr says slavery is back, and the coronavirus is getting its own award show. So let's do this, people. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off in Barbados, the place with a rich, beautiful history that you probably won't see because it's outside the Sandals Resort. Although the Caribbean island obtained independence in 1966, the Queen of England is still officially the head of state. But that's about to change. Queen Elizabeth is being removed as head of state in Barbados. The Caribbean nation plans to become a republic next year, 55 years after declaring independence from Britain. The island's governor general says the time has come to leave the colonial past behind. It'll be the first time in three decades the monarch has been removed. The queen is head of state in more than a dozen countries, formerly under British rule, including Australia, Canada, and Jamaica. Oh no, first Meghan Markle and now Barbados? The queen is losing all her black friends. And the question is, why now? I mean, did Barbados just get sick of the British? Or were Her Majesty's vacation cornrows the last straw? I thought she looked fly. You know who I feel really bad for though? Prince Charles. I mean, think about it. When he was born, he was set to inherit a massive global empire. By the time he finally takes over though, he'll basically just be ruling Seattle, but with a fancier accent. I mean, at this rate, The only Caribbean island that British royals will be welcome at is Jeffrey Epstein's. Either way, this was a lot easier than when America broke free from the British. I mean, they had a whole war. Barbados just basically ghosted the queen. Hello? Hello, Barbados, are you there? Hello? Shh, don't answer the phone. Rihanna's our queen now. Let's move on now to another country where people are desperate to rid themselves of a despotic monarch, the United States of America. One of the biggest clashes between protesters and police this summer was on June 1st, when federal police used tear gas, pepper spray, and batons to clear the park in front of the White House so that President Trump could hold a Bible in front of a church. I wanna show people that it doesn't burn my kind like they show in the movies. We can hold, we can hold it. But as overheated as that response was, we're now finding out that it could have been even hotter. A military whistleblower says federal officials sought to use a heat ray, which makes people's skin feel like it's burning, to deal with protesters outside the White House in June. Major Adam DeMarco told a House committee that a military police officer emailed him seeking an active denial system, also known as heat ray. The officer stated in his email, quote, the device provides a sensation of intense heat on the surface of the skin. DeMarco says he responded, saying the D.C. National Guard did not have the device. God. Damn, I can't believe this is real life. Federal police wanted to use a heat ray against peaceful protesters outside the White House. At this point, guys, can we admit Trump is essentially a real life Bond villain? He's already got the golden lair, an Eastern European girl in camo, and a creepy pet. Oh, and by the way, 
What a crazy way to learn that America's military has a heat ray. This is the same country that can't find money for veterans or healthcare or teachers, but somehow it has a giant microwave gun just lying around, you know, just in case we want to hot pocket the Middle East. And I will say, now that I know America has this weapon, I'm gonna wear that Lady Gaga meat dress to every protest I attend. Yeah, that way I'll be protected from the heat and I won't have to stress about making dinner. No justice, no peace. A little more well done on this side, please. Moving on to the coronavirus pandemic. It's the outbreak that's harder to get rid of than the college buddy that's been crashing on your couch. This is not a hotel, Dave, you've gotta leave. Yeah, okay, pizza sounds good. I'll be done in about like 30 minutes. A new report has found that when New York City ordered one of the strictest shutdowns in the country last spring, it reduced the spread of coronavirus by 70%. Yeah, 70%. Normally when something is beaten that badly in New York, it's the Knicks. But even though stay-at-home orders saved countless lives, and even though most places didn't try anything nearly as tough as New York, Donald Trump's attorney general thinks that they still went way too far. In new remarks, Attorney General William Barr courting controversy by saying this about the coronavirus lockdown. Putting a national lockdown, stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. It's, the, it's, the, it's, you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. Okay, 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 okay. Slow your roll there, droopy dog. Corona quarantines are not even close to the worst intrusion into civil liberties. I mean, just off the top of my head, how about Japanese internment camps during World War II? You know, that was like taking a face mask, making it huge, sticking an entire race of people in it, and then saying they can't take it off. Like, just 50 years ago, black people were kicked out of restaurants and they couldn't vote unless they answered a riddle from a sphinx. I could go on, but it's only a 45-minute show. And don't get me wrong. I know that Barr said slavery was worse, but he shouldn't even be mentioning slavery in the same breath as corona shutdowns. Like, I, I, I almost wonder why it is that every time Republicans don't like something, they compare it to slavery. Obamacare is like slavery. Paying taxes is like slavery. Like, do they do this at home? Hmm? Is Barr at home? Like, God damn it! I wish Harriet Tubman would free me from this Zoom call. Oh, sorry, I thought I was on mute. Sorry, guys. Because look, I know not going to the movies sucked, but Trump supporters weren't exactly out here singing slave spirituals. Would have been funny to see though. Swing low, sweet Caroline. Ha, ha, ha. Why were we angry? I forgot, cause this song makes me happy. But while Bill Barr is trying to make it sound like the lockdowns were the worst thing to ever happen in America, his boss, Donald Trump, is trying to convince everyone that things really haven't been that bad, especially when you don't count half the country. Breaking news, President Trump suggesting the United States would be doing uh, much better with coronavirus if we just took out the death numbers from blue states. If you look at what we've done and all of the lives that we've saved, and I'm gonna ask that a graph be put up, and now it's up, and that's despite the fact that the blue states had, had tremendous death rates. If you take the blue states out, we're uh, at, at a level that uh, I don't think anybody in the world would be at. Okay, no, guys, no, hold on, hold on. Did this dude just try pull the, if you eat around the mold, everything's fine move, but with corona deaths? I mean, while we're at it, 
Why don't we just not count the red states too? Then the US has zero deaths, which is pretty impressive if you ask me. It's truly astounding that a leader, a leader would even think of his country in that way. You can't just write off entire states. My man, this isn't the electoral college. The popular vote counts. And by the way, these comments aren't just embarrassing and unpatriotic and just gross. They're also wrong. Because even if you made the very weird decision to not count deaths from all the blue states, America would still have one of the worst death rates of any country in the world. So even Trump's lies are lies. It's like the the inception of lies. Somehow, Trump can't even flatten the curve he's grading himself on. For more on Trump's divisive statements, I wanna bring in a guy who's offended people in both red and blue states, Michael Costa. Michael, what do you make of this whole thing, man? Isn't Trump dismissing the deaths in the parts of the country that didn't vote for him shocking? Well, at first I thought so, Trevor, but sometimes something seems shocking at first, but then later it turns out to be a good idea, like naked hang gliding. Michael, please, I told you, I'm not doing that with you. But I already booked the plane. Besides, I don't wanna go with Ronnie again. He's so much better at being naked than me. How is he better at being naked? Look, we're getting off track. Costa, what I wanna know is what part of Trump's statement sounded like a good idea to you? Well, here's the thing. At this point, we all know Trump only cares about the red states. So let's grant him his wish and just make him president of the red states. Red states get Trump, blue states get Biden, and they'll just split the country straight down the middle and everybody's happier. Whoa, whoa, but Costa, I mean, what you're proposing is what happened during the Civil War. I'm not talking about a civil war, I'm talking about a civil divorce. Only this time the armies will be lawyers. The rivers will run red, but with ink. And the slaves, well, the slaves, they will be... Careful, careful. Okay, right, right. I've never been good with analogies. To me, analogies are like slaves. They are... Oh, careful. Okay, look, good point, good point, I'll stop. My, My point is this. What if the Civil War was the first breakup in a bad relationship? We stuck with it because we thought we could figure it out, but then as we get older, we know that we're not good for each other. Besides now, our current leader has a lot of experience with divorce, so he could help guide us through it. But Michael, there's no way to neatly divide America into two countries, you know? You can't just do it along political lines. I mean, look at New York State. The city might be Democratic, but some of upstate is as red as Alabama. Fine, so New York City breaks up with upstate New York. More flags, more Olympic teams, who has a problem with that? Yeah, but then Michael, Staten Island is also more red than the rest of the city. I mean, how many times can you keep dividing? Pretty soon, every person is just gonna be in their own country. Great, and every country will be united. I mean, I can't even disagree with myself that I love lower taxes, although, I also really like social services. Huh, there's only one way to solve this disagreement. Costa, please do not cut yourself in half. Don't interfere with my sovereign business. Unless you wanna arrange a summit, we could meet perhaps tomorrow around noon. You know what? Cut yourself in half. I think we we can survive it. You 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 just go and do that. Michael Costa, everyone, we'll be right back. Just do it, Costa, you can't threaten me. Do it, yeah, that's right, do it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. This is an exciting week 
For me especially, because Sunday night is the 72nd annual Emmy Awards. It's the Oscars for people who are just slightly less attractive. And I have a good feeling this year, guys. Not just because The Daily Show was nominated, but because I was also the actor who played Baby Yoda. Yeah, I know you can't tell. The makeup team did a terrific job. I just wanna say thank you again to everyone. Thank you so much, guys. But it's not just the Emmys. This weekend is also the first, and hopefully last, Pandemi Awards, which honor the most notable performances during the coronavirus pandemic. And I know you've probably never heard of the pandemies because we just made them up, but everybody's talking about it. And the best part is you guys are gonna vote. Yeah, you at home, you're gonna vote for the winners. And honestly, I don't envy you because there are a dozen categories this year with some really tough choices. For instance, who do you think should win for one of my favorite matchups? most optimistic performance. The nominees for the most optimistic performance are Larry Kudlow for We Have Contained This. We have contained this virus. We have contained this, I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. Elon Musk for April. Elon Musk tweeted, based on current trends, probably close to zero new cases in the United States too by the end of April. Mike Pence for Memorial Day. By Memorial Day weekend, we will largely have this coronavirus epidemic behind us. Jared Kushner for really rocking again. I think you'll see by June, a lot of the country should be back to normal. And the hope is, is that by, by July, uh, the country's really rocking again. Donald Trump for like a miracle, it'll disappear. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle, it will disappear. How do you even decide? I mean, you have to love Donald Trump, unless you're Melania, but, but don't underestimate rocking Jared Kushner. We're rocking, we're rocking. Oh man, he was so optimistic. He didn't just predict the end of the pandemic. He was making plans to go to the club afterwards. And knowing Jared, he probably gets to the club right when it opens at 7.30 PM. The most important thing is for us to get prime space on the dance floor. Now, one of the great things about the pandemics is that unlike other award shows, it's not just about the famous people. No, normal folks get to be nominated too. I mean, I mean, maybe normal isn't the right word and you'll see what I mean. The nominees for best Karen are Democratic Pigs, all of you. I have a right to my pizza. You don't need a mask. I have a right to my pizza. I have a right to get my order. I don't give a f I am legend. Oh, Lord. And I am legend. That bitch What a performance. That woman was tonguing the door like they went to prom together. Such passion. And this is an exciting category. Because remember, no matter who wins, the loser will call 911 and ask to speak to the manager. I'm telling you, my friends, the 2020 pandemics are gonna be sick. I mean, like, 
fever, dry cough, loss of smell sick. So if you want to join in, all you need to do is go to pandemiawards.com to watch all the videos and vote for your favorites. Oh, and one last thing. There was a special honorary pandemic this year, and there's only one person who could deserve that. President Donald Trump. The Pandemies extends a special honor to Donald Trump for outstanding achievement in self-editing. If we didn't do it, you would have had a million people, a million and a half people, maybe two million people dead. Now we're going toward 50, I'm hearing, or 60,000 people. 60. Maybe 65,000. 65,000 people. 70,000, it's far too many. One person is too many. 75, 80, 80 or 90,000 people. They had minimum numbers of 100,000. So we have between 100 and 200,000. 100,000 to 240,000 deaths. And we're below that substantially, and we'll see where it comes out. Wow, guys. Something tells me he's gonna win that award next year, too. Remember to vote now at pandemiawards.com and join us on Monday to find out who won. It's time for us to take a short break, but don't go away because Ewan McGregor is still coming up. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. We talked about what they're doing to help ensure a safe and fair election and so much more. Check it out. Sherilyn Eiffel, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Let's start with the name of your organization, just so that people don't get confused. There is the NAACP and there is the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, both very similar sounding names, obviously, but two distinct and different organizations. What is the NAACP Legal Defense Fund? So the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was formed in 1940 by Thurgood Marshall, the, you know, trailblazing civil rights lawyer, first black uh, justice on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, We were part of the NAACP when we were first created. We separated and became completely separated by 1957. Uh, We were the the Legal Defense Fund, which we are sometimes called, was the Mm -hmm. legal arm of the civil rights movement. So we represented John Lewis, the Selma marchers, the Freedom Riders, uh, Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycotters. We represented Muhammad Ali when he wanted to get his boxing license back. Uh, We have always been that legal arm of the civil rights uh, struggle. The NAACP is a large membership uh, mobilizing grassroots organization. We don't have members. Uh, we're largely a legal organization. It feels like 2020 has thrust this organization back into the limelight in a way that I guess no one would have wanted really or expected. W- what have you seen this year that has been different to maybe the past decade even? Well, you know, it's interesting. The best of civil rights progress in this country has always happened when their alchemy of several things all connect together. So grassroots mobilization and protest, um, when you know legal organizations are firing on all cylinders, and I think really for the last three years, people have recognized the importance of civil rights lawyers again. And when there is kind of a political moment, you know, when all of those things are happening at the same time, that's what was happening during the civil rights movement. And it is essentially the recipe for change and for transformation. So there's a lot that's similar. The part that's different, and this is really important, is that certainly throughout the 20th century and most importantly in the civil rights movement, when uh, black people faced a challenge to our rights as full citizens, it largely came from state actors, you know, the state of Alabama, the state of Mississippi, uh, local sheriffs, governors, and so forth. And the place that people went to for recourse was the federal government. 
right? What is different is that this is the first moment, certainly in my lifetime that I can recall, when not only is the federal government not a recourse, not only is age, uh, Attorney General Barr not trying to be, uh, not trying to advance civil rights, they're actually standing against it. They actually have a program to roll back civil rights. And they also are some of the biggest instigators of a kind of anti-civil rights and frankly white supremacist um, ideology that has kind of uh, recaptured so much of this country. So that is different than it was in the past and many degrees more dangerous in my view. But I, I also think that you know we're not quite there yet. So far the law has been holding now, it's not great. We've lost you know, a good number of cases. Frankly, some of them we were losing before Trump was elected. We should recognize that the case that kind of really reopened voter suppression in the country was um, decided by the Supreme Court in 2013. So this is not all created by President Trump. Uh, there was this move towards more conservatism. Uh, but we will really see whether the center holds, I think, in the coming year. And that's why this moment is so powerful and so important. We're in courts every day. We still win cases. Uh, but we also lose cases and we also increasingly see um, courts acting in a way that does not adhere to the rule of law. There are many people who may say, I'm confused. Why would you need civil rights lawyers? I mean, wasn't civil rights settled in, in 1965? You know, black people are free now. You know, gay people have equal marriage. I mean, why, why does anybody need to be a civil rights lawyer at this point? If you were to distill it down and give us a few examples, what are some of the concrete things that your organization is fighting for on the ground? We represent those who are most marginalized, those who are at the bottom. And so we're actually the early warning system for our democracy. And frankly, would uh, many people have listened to the call we were making, we might not be in the circumstance that we're in. So when you are facing uh, you know, voter purges, when you are finding that the state doesn't permit you to absentee vote or requires you to get two signatures of two witnesses during a pandemic uh, in order to cast your absentee ballot, when you discover that you have been convicted of a crime and, and the prosecutor removed all black people from the jury, when you're sentenced to death uh, and an expert witness says you should be sentenced to death because you're more likely to be dangerous in the future simply because you're black, when you don't have access to uh, equal education and you can't access the internet during a period in which we've gone to virtual school, mm -hmm. um, when you're caught in prison during COVID in inhumane conditions, all of these are things that are currently on our target. But the important takeaway is it's never over because you have to keep pressing on a democracy. You have to keep pushing to move it forward and you have to keep defending what you won in the past. And this moment is a time when I think Americans have to recognize that democracy is work. It's not just a privilege that you sit back and smoke a cigarette and say, I live in a democracy. You have to work all the time. And that's the price of living in a democracy is active citizenship. If somebody's watching this right now and they wanna chip in, they wanna help, they wanna get information on what their rights are, they wanna get information on voting, where can they go? How do they get the information? How do they keep in touch with the Legal Defense Fund? So first of all, for voting, voting, at naacpldf.org. It's really, really important. It's a microsite that's got everything you need to know about voting this year. You can go to our website, uh, www.naacpldf.org. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. This is about good information. We think this is the most important thing at this moment because unfortunately, disinformation is part of the tactic that we're seeing the other side use. And so for us, it's important as a nonpartisan organization to provide good, solid information for people who believe in democracy, for people who want to be 
good citizens, and most of all, for the black community that needs to be able to be in position to mobilize and um, exercise political power. I uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. I know that a lot of people who watch the show appreciate you as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you, Trevor. All right, after the break, I'll be joined by Obi-Wan Kenobi himself, Ewan McGregor. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with international movie star Ewan McGregor. We talked about his new series on Apple TV Plus called Long Way Up, where he travels across South and Central America on a motorbike. Ewan McGregor, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Nice to see you, thanks for having me. You have been in some of our favorite movies. I mean, just like some of the most iconic movies. Um, but over the past few years, you've also taken time out of your life to just live, I guess, every Instagrammer's dream, and that is get on a motorbike and just ride around a random country. When, when did you decide that, you know what, I'm just gonna take my, my vacations with a friend and turn them into the show? It was, it was out of laziness, to be honest. We, my friend Charlie and I have known each other since we made this film together called Serpent's Kiss 25 years ago, 24 years ago. And we both had just had our first children, so we were both new dads, and we both had this love of motorcycles. And we, we, we became very fast friends. And then I read this book that was written by somebody who's now a friend of mine called Ted Simon, who was a journalist for, I think, the Sunday Times, the Radio Times, in London in the 1970s. And he decided to do this round-the-world trip to, right. to write a column about traveling around the world. And he wasn't a biker, but he decided the best way to do it would be on the back of a bike. So he bought, he got Triumph to supply him a bike, and off he went. And it took him three or four years, and he wrote this beautiful book called Jupiter's Travels, which I read and was just moved by and started daydreaming about traveling. So we decided to do the first trip in 2004, London to New York. And, and the visa applications are so complicated, like getting in and out of Russia two or three times. Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and we just were too lazy to do it ourselves. So we thought, well, if we shoot this, then we can have a little production office with people that will do that stuff for us. And uh, that's why that's sort of how it was born. You rode 13,000 miles through, I think it was 13 countries. It feels like, at the, I mean, you know, the coronavirus has shut that all down. Were you ready to take a break or could you just have kept on riding if, if the whole world didn't have to come to a stop? I could have kept going. I mean, towards the end, I just realized that I could, this could be it for me. You know, if I didn't have my children and Mary to come back to, I, I could just keep going, you know? I just, <laughs> I, 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 like, I like the, I love the sort of nomadicism, if that's a word of it. The, right. It's very human. It's a like a really nice, you wake up in the morning, you pack the bike and you just keep going that, in the vague direction you're headed in. Mm -hmm. And then you, at night you find somewhere to sleep or you put a tent up or whatever and you've and then you've got it all to do again the next day there's something quite lovely about it not knowing what's around the next corner not knowing who you're going to meet not knowing when the next thing that goes wrong is going to go wrong and when the next person when it does go wrong is going to come and help you you know because it's just always the case you were riding electric motorbikes for the first time and it came, with a, it came with a different set of challenges. Like, I, I didn't think about bikes not charging because they're too cold sometimes. I didn't think about, like, randomly running out of power because, because there are no charging stations. Two questions. Why did you choose the bikes? Like, why did you choose to go electric? And, and secondly, what did you notice about riding electric through so many different countries? In our, in, our, in our long way round trip in 2004 and a long way down trip in 2007, we had absolute freedom to 
stop wherever if we were riding along and it was four in the afternoon we could just ride off the road and put our tents up and then the next morning carry on well we couldn't we didn't have that huge freedom this time because we had to have the, bl the bike plugged in somewhere so right that was one one slight impact on the experience in that we had to be in a hostel or a hotel or somewhere where we could plug it in um but that led the, the upshot of that was it led us to meet people we would never normally have met like we were we were stuck behind we were stuck between a town we'd stopped in in the afternoon. This was in Chile, uh, Chile, I think, and it's somewhere. And then the town we were heading to, were, and there was nothing in between, so we had to get to this town. But this town was on the other side of this big mountain. And so start going uphill, and when you're going uphill, you're using more power. Then there was a headwind, and when you've got a headwind, you're less aerodynamic. You're not very aerodynamic on a bike anyway, but when you've got a headwind, you're using more power. You're using more power. And we're, at that point, I said, I'm not going to make it. So we were just next to this little settlement that was, couldn't call it a farm. It was just a little house. It was a sort of a farm-esque type place. And we just rocked up there and we knocked on this sort of gate and this little kids ran out and they, they opened the gate. We rode in. We just said to this lady who came out of her house, look, we're, we're in our broken Spanish. We're trying to ride these electric bikes from Ushuaia to Los Angeles. And <laughs> can we plug them in would you mind and we you know this is how much it costs to fill the bike up and we'll give you that money and she was quite happy to let us do it so we plugged in and within two minutes the whole place was plunged into darkness all our fuses had gone and instead <laughs> of her going you know off, get out of here you're ruining my electricity she just she was in the fuse box trying to help us to charge oh, our wow and um in the end we couldn't do it there we just had to thank her and we had to backtrack and go back to the town but that happened to us all the time, you know. This—that's one of the beautiful things about doing these trips—is that that human interact, that human kindness that you experience daily is is so uplifting and overwhelming. It's just lovely. You were stuck, like when you were in Ukraine, you were stuck at the border for like twelve hours. You know, the foreign ministry had to help you out. When you were in Mongolia, there were sheep herders that had to help you fix one of the bikes. You know, when you were in Kazakhstan, you had somebody pull a handgun on you. At that point, when someone's pulling a handgun on you. Do you not think to yourself in that moment, all right, maybe, maybe just maybe we shouldn't be riding through all of these random countries? No, I had two, two words in my mind when that guy pulled the handgun. And it was so funny looking back because it was, oh, no. That was, all, that was it. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't any more complicated than that. I just thought, oh, no. That was it. And then it <laughs> <laughs> so funny i mean it was so funny how we both tell that story charlie and i because we're in this long stretch in kazakhstan and there's camels for the first time and we've ridden from london on our motorbikes to somewhere where there are camels at the side so we thought this was a we should mark this moment we got the bikes off the side of the road and um this car arrives from miles away we can see it coming and it's full of guys kazakhstan guys they're all got lots of gold teeth i remember and they're sort of smiling at us out the window and they look down at the video camera on the floor and then look back at us and the guy in the back pulls out a handgun. Now, in my story, he points it directly at me. And in Charlie's story, he points it directly at Charlie. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to me, it's definitely pointing at me, I think. And um, those were those thoughts. Oh, no. And then luckily a truck was coming from the other direction and... Um, Claudia looked over her shoulder, saw the truck, looked back at the guys. The guys saw the truck and they put the gun away and they drove off. So we were fine. 
Man, I'll tell you this. It's an amazing show because you, you, you take us to so many different countries. We get to see how so many different people live. I mean, from meeting child soldiers in one part of the world to speaking to old ladies in another, it, it's a beautiful show. And honestly, my favorite part of it was just, it made me feel like I was leaving the house and traveling the world. So uh, thank you for an, another amazing series and uh, good luck to you when you get back out there on a bike. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great chatting to you. And Cheers, man. Take care. Nice to talk to you. That's our show for tonight, but before we go, the West Coast is still currently battling some horrific wildfires that are destroying millions of acres of land and displacing thousands of people. Climate change has been a key factor in increasing the risk and the extent of these conditions. And one organization that has been working to find practical solutions for climate change is the Environmental Defense Fund. Until next time, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, if you don't count your failures, and everything in life has been a complete success. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.